Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, continuing on with our, our, the next podcast, the episode, Colonial Home Building or House Writing. Uh, a lot of good information. It's uh, possibly a little bit difficult to, uh, to follow on this type of format, but uh, let's go slow and let's give it a shot. Okay, so uh, we, we talked about materials, um, the jointery established uh, for post and beam. Now we're talking about the day that we start to put this house up, this structure, the skeleton of a post and beam house, 18th century. So let's call it the raising day. Everything was in readiness. It might well have taken a year since the first tree was felled. To this day, a new American landmark was created, building a timber frame house. Being a good neighbor never meant more than on, on raising day. By dawn, the villagers had largely gathered at the building site with their hearth-cooked hearth meals, uh, the drink, the gossip, the goodwill, even had music, and above all, plenty of muscle power. There was the same anticipation of later Independence Day celebrations, for these were special times to never forget. So actually, you know, setting that first timber frame up, so let's don't forget today that... Uh, um, the Amish and the Mennonite sect, particularly uh, which was first based in Lancaster County and Lebanon County, Pennsylvania, still has these type of raising. So this is not foreign to us today. We, we make a trip out to, quote, Amish country. They're still doing this. So remember the bents are those frames of the two ends of the house. The bents were positioned on the temporary boards that covered the flooring, timber, hard boards that covered the flooring timber. Hard were stacked and number frame pieces that included the connecting girts that would secure the bents, the corner braces, the second floor, and the attic joists, the summer beams, and the rafters that would be raised, joined, and seated to receive their share of purlins. All this took the organization of a field general in the day who had the know-how of a master framer and a keen eye for any pitfalls that may be ahead. Usually the responsibility fell upon the shoulder of the head carpenter. Um, so it, it took one person for every 50 pounds of bent weight that must be lifted. The trick was to lift with the legs while keeping the back straight on command. Everyone must lift together until the bent plate was breast high. Others shouldered the post as the bent rose skyward. Then the pikemen joined up with their long, sharp poles to steady the upper bent. To prevent the poles from sliding at the bent, which was raised, Stop locks were anchored at the still mortises. The outsized, oversized or outsized mallet of the commander persuaded the post tenants into place. So remember that commander could was a, basically a big mallet, 36 inches long with maybe a 16 to 25 pound head. Um, so the commander helped move these uh, bents in place and you would have had some stops on the existing flooring. So also they used something called gin poles, 
Um, Jin Poles, uh, willing hands raised the one-story bents for such as a Cape Cod without the benefit of mechanical devices. But erecting a, a weighty two-story bent of heavy timber was quite another problem. So how they did this was using leverage with a gin pole. The gin pole could contribute an added power lift with its block and tackle rigging. Um, so just let's talk about the anatomy of a block. Um, so the block was a casing containing a pulley or a system of pulleys. And the more pulleys you have, the more leverage you have. So you would have the, uh, the trimble, the block, the pulley, and the pin. And you could have a single becket or a double becket. Okay. Um, tackle. So let's talk about tackle. A rope and its system of pulleys made up the tackle. This increased power advantage and it depended on the number of ropes supporting the movable block. The first tackle, so we've all heard of top, uh, block and tackle, the first tackle has no advantage for the lift and the pull are equal. The last tackle has five ropes to the movable block and therefore supplied five times the lift power as the pull. Regardless of the number of pulleys used, in the stationary and movable blocks, the gin pole had to be tall enough to lift the tackle above the raised bent. Today, a crane in a, in a, is a you know, later or newer alternative to an old muscle and gin pole combination. So when we were trying to determine to get our bents up, we needed to know that they were plumb. So a plumb bob or plummet um, well, let's talk about that. So before the now upright bent could be secured with temporary braces, it had to be plumbed. To contain, to contain it, it stood perfectly vertical. To do so, a plumb bod, bob B -O -B, was suspended from a cord. Originally of lead, its name came from the Latin plumbum, the simple device not only checked for perpendicularness of the post, with the sills, but also the horizontally, horizontality of such surfaces as the girts and plates when the plumb bob was hung from a framework. Today, the plumb bobs have been turned into plastic, some in brass, uh, but those original ones were, were done in lead, and they, they tend to be a, a, almost a drop shape with a, with a point at the bottom, so you can get an exactitude uh, drop measurement. So what, what we have here is we have our foundation, our flooring down, and we have our two end bents up. So we need to join the bents together to hold them up once we get them plumb. The front and back girts were raised and their tenons were eased into the corner post mortised at the same time as the knee braces were positioned. Then the pins were pounded home, driven deep. The next step was to lift the second bent off enough to be joined with the girt and braces. Once pegged, the box-like partial frame was ready to be locked together forever with a summer beam. So let's talk about the summer beam. Kind of a crazy name. Too many people have called into me, said like, where, did, where does this name come from? And sometimes we have name recognition for a part or component or thing or an occasion, and we can say, uh, yeah, I get that right away, but the summer beam is a little bit uh, excessive and uh, 
You know, all these traditional 18th century timber frame post and beam dwellings have them, and the uh, including the Shivers House Museum in historic Woodstown, New Jersey. So the massive weight-bearing timber, the summer beam, often the heaviest of the entire framework, tied the two bents together. So this is a beam that runs right down the middle and holds the two ends of the house together, essentially. The name had nothing to do with the seasons. Likely, it was a corruption of the old English word sumpter, meaning a pack horse or mule that carried heavy loads. So hence, this beam, 10 by 10, 10 by 20 inches square, carried the load of the whole house. So it was, so it was with the summer beam, for it carried the second floor joist at a, and as a midway support also. So once the, the two bents have been joined by the connecting girts to form a four-sided box, the summer beam was raised and then lowered into position. Like the first floor girders, the summer beam was forever wedged in place with the housed dovetail joints. Unlike other major joinings, there was no need to drill and pin the joint. By, uh, just by gravity, this dovetail joint was just dropped in. No need to pin it or to peg it with tree nails. Because the summer beam was of such size, it projected well into the room below. A few runs with a molding plane could turn it into an architectural feature. And uh, we have two of these sitting in the Shiver house, Shiver's house right now. The simplest edge dressing was a beveled chamfer. The OG and the head were a bit more elegant. Whatever the design, the decorative molding ended up with various chamfer stops. An OG, a bevel, or a bead generally was put on these uh, summer beams with hand planes. So, the two connected bents had formed a bay. When the two remaining bents were joined, another bay was created, thus a third bay that filled the gap between them. New names for the timber now located their position in the framework. Once the second floor ceiling, summer beams, and the plates had been lowered into place, all that was needed to complete the frame was the capping with the roof timbers. So let's talk about raising the roof. And using rafters, collar ties, purlins, dovetail joints, tongue and fork joint at the top peak of the house, second floor girt, post, horizontal roofing boards, rafters, step lapped plates, post tenons, all terminology that you need to know to be a successful post and beam builder or timber frame builder. And as with the second floor, the joists were tapped into the mortises of the summer beam and the flanking front and rear plates. The last of the framing timbers were stacked and ready to be hoisted to the temporary attic decking. These were, these were the rafters, collar ties, and purlins that had earlier been uh, fitted together and then disassembled. So remember, this entire roof, um, in part, the, the two rafters and collar ties all the way down the row, whether it was 20 or 30 of them in a row, would be assembled on the ground and then taken back apart. But there was no reason why rafters must always perch atop the framing post. In a day when trees stood tall, a single timber 
could run the length of a house. The front and rear plate often hewn from such giants. Mortises were cut to fit over the post tenons. Into the upper face were chiseled a series of step lap rafter seats that would secure the rafters in place. Unlike the rafter to post frame, the roofing boards would run horizontally across the rafters instead of vert vertically across the purlins. Whatever the, the rafter arrangement, each pair of rafters was joined and pegged on the attic boards, one, one pegged and one tempor temporarily braced. When the second pair was raised and braced, the purlins could be locked into place. The remaining rafter pairs were raised and joined in like manner. All that was needed was a small pine tree to be nailed at the top of the rafter, a tribute to the trees and the neighbors who made the stout frame work possible. So this actually happened, and when, when they would get the whole roofing system up, they put a small little uh, Christmas tree up there, two, three feet high, a pine tree. Um, so uh, again, uh, a lot of terminology here throughout this uh, you know, our, uh, our episodes, but so let's, let's talk about, uh, boarding the frame on raising day. Once it had ended with an assort assortment of tired muscles, Yankee wit and, and tall stories, husky appetites with half cooking at its best and dancing into the night. But by dawn, the house rights were back on the job, ready to sheath their new frame creation. While boards had already been pulled to use as temporary decking, there would be many wagon loads needed from the Sawyers. By the early 1700s, there was a trend towards sheathing the roof and siding with sawn boards before nailing some of the shingles and clapboards. So part of this, the, 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 uh, the clapboards and, and the, uh, the, uh, the sheathing was cut with the pit saw. Sawing logs lengthwise into boards called for a husky, broad-bladed saw with teeth like small chisels. This tool's design, ripping blades, held taut in a wooden framework, hadn't changed since the 15th century, shortened after the colonials arrived at Jamestown in Plymouth. The casting technique of steel had been improved considerably. As a result, a new pit saw came into being, one that needed no framework to keep the tension on the blade that was now <coughs> considerably stronger. Colonists called it a whip or open pit saw. By the mid-18th century, it had become the favorite of Sawyer's. The pit saw's teeth were pointed downward to rip about an inch into the length of the log with each stroke. A hollow gillet in front of every tooth gave more room for the pile-up sawdust shavings. The blade had to be disengaged when the cut and the pit supporter or the trestle. To free the frame blade, the tension wedge and two other pins were removed. The whip blade carriage or change was more easier for the box handle at the tapered lower end only needed to have its wedge removed before repositioning the blade. So it's almost like a huge bow saw um, is what they did. A rectangular uh, frame was made and this, uh, this heavy-duty blade is in between with a handle on top so that the individual on top could pull up on the handle and the individual in the pit would just pull down on the frame per se itself. 
um, to continue each, cut down the length of the log. So this is how they're cutting the log up. So to continue each, cut down the length of the log. The blade must be freed to insert it into the inner side of the pit roller or crutch. That was easily enough, which with, with the way the whipsaw blade for only the box handle wedge needed to be knocked out before pushing the tapered end of the blade into the cut. On the other hand, removing the blade from the frame sole called for a time-consuming removal of all the wedges and pins before the blade could be reinserted. So what, what they would do, they would start cutting the end of a log with a pit saw, a man in the pit, a man on top of the log, and they're, they're pushing and pulling this blade up and down. And they wouldn't take one cut all the way down. They would start, they'd say they'd, they'd make a cut two or three feet into the blade. They go back, they measure over how thick of the stock they want, the planking, and they do the same. So they would start by making, say, th uh, you know, two or three foot cuts down. Then they would pick up on those cuts and drive them another two or three foot down instead of having to do one full length, come back again. So it's a kind of a efficiency of, of, of design, efficiency of energy here. Um, the Sawyer's handle, the tiller, could steer a wayward but flexible whipsaw balance back on course if given a slight twist back toward the chair line, the chalk line rather. The cut or kerf was continued to the far roller, leaving about six inches of uncut log. Sawing the full length of each board would soon leave the sawyer standing on air. Wedges driven into each prevented any binding of the saw blade. Then the saw was disengaged, the blade was reinserted into the neighboring cut, and the sawing resumed. Finally, the far roller was turned forward, well under the cuts. The dog was removed, and the cross-cut bow saw used for the tree to, to free the boards. They were ready for stacking and air drying. So they would not saw, when they were putting these parallel lines every two or three feet down, when they get to the end, they leave like a foot of, uh, of solid material, and then they would just cross-cut that off and free up all the boards in one swoop cut. So making uh, their life a little bit simple. Pit sawing was a two-man operation. The log to be sawed was supported over a pit. Larger operator operations, such as shipbuilding, lumber yards, would use elevated trestles, such as, uh, you know, in the 18th century, um, the elevated trestles, again, in shipyards. The sawyer stood on the log and guided the blade along snap chalk lines. And the pitman, aided by the weight of the saw and gravity, pulled the saw downward. This un inevitable chore brought down a shower of sawdust with each stroke. His broad-brimmed hat, which would be worn, was a must. And at the end of the day, it would just have piles of sawdust around the brim. Perhaps the saying, it's in the pits, originated from the pitman's lowly position. So... You know, prepping for this uh, pit saw in action with the log in position on rollers, the bark was skimmed off with the spud. The log was rolled over onto two joist rollers and secured with the dog. So the dogs were used here. Chalk lines or charcoal lines were snapped as guides for the sawyer. The log projected three or four feet over the support ready for sawing. An, alter, an, an alternative was a trestle 
much like a sawhorse today, um, an oversized sawhorse, at the end an immovable crutch three or four feet from its end. It took real manpower to even just reposition the log. The sawyer stood on top of the log, pushing down and guiding the cut on the downstroke. The pitman kept the blade plumb while downward to advance the blade on the return stroke. The sawyer raised the handle to shoulder's height as the pitman pushed up and slightly backward to prevent any friction drag. So let's let's talk about the uh, the Sawyer the saw the sawmill in action here. So uh, a lot of these were water powered. Uh, so let's let's just get a, a brief feeling for this. To move the log carrier forward, an L-shaped lever arm was fixed to the upper frame. So this is a this is a sawmill actually, and uh, utilizing water power, turning a couple of contrade gears, and and making this whole thing work. So. Very early stuff, 1720s, um, you have basically a pit saw, uh, which is unmanned. So, uh, you know, instead of the two men in the pit, you're using water power to pull it up and down. So let's, uh, let's assume that we have our timber frame house framed. And let's, uh, let's, let's talk about shingles, okay? And, uh, you know, the Shivers, the Shivers House and the Shivers House Museum... Um, the last bastion of restoration conservation is going to be the replacement of the cedar shake roof. So let's just talk a little bit about shingles. The early uh, colonists carried on the old English tradition of roof thatching. The lopping of bound bundles of reeds and straw required a sharply pitched roof to the 60 degree mark to hurry off soaking rains. So these early Early um, thatched roofs have to be at a radical 60 or more degree. Otherwise, the rains are going to soak into the, uh, the, like the straw, almost like a, quote, a, a drinking straw. And we don't want that. We want them just to run the length all the way off the edge of the roof. So up to 60 degrees to hurry off soaking rains. So rows of horizontal sticks were nailed to the rafters to secure the thatching. But well before the last quarter of the 17th century had begun, blustery winds and downpours on the side of the Atlantic could turn the straw bundles into overhead sponges. Shingles split from oak, cypress, chestnut, and white pine were the weather-worry answers when laid in overlapping rows and nailed to the one-by-three-inch thatched purlins, water quickly drained down the fibrous grooves in the split surfaces. Underneath, a free circulation of air prevented rot. A more gentle rafter slope of 45 degrees was all that was needed. The new roofing could well last a lifetime. Before many years, an entire framework could be sheathed in sawn boards, making the thatch purlins obsolete very quickly. Let's talk about how these were made. How were these cedar shakes or cedar shingles made? And a lot of it was used by, all by hand by the fro and maul. These riving tools were introduced, um, you know, a, a few uh, a few talks back, with the making of timber pegs or tree nails or trunnels. Following that rule of thumb, the wood was worked when green and sh and shingled when seasoned. The splitting technique did vary according to the kind of wood being used. 
So basically, we're going to take our bow saw and we're going to use straight grain, not free sections. We're cut from the log, usually 24 to 30 inches long. Um, and no longer lengths should, should be used. Um, oak had undesirable por uh, portions that must be removed. The heartwood was brittle and hard. A right iron nail would buckle after the several blows. The outer ring of sapwood rotted quickly and had to had no place in weather boarding. So that's just telling us a little blurb here that oak, even though it's like a rock and it's it's insect resistant, when it comes to excessive warning, um, it breaks down very quickly. So in essence, too, we've we've cut a log up like twenty four to thirty inches. Now, the piece was upended, so it's sitting up on its end, and split into equal sections called billets. So that's using your mallet and fro. Uh, large diameter chunks might need wedges to split out the billets. So as you're cutting, the tree may want to buckle and, and you know, depending on how it's grown and come back at you. So you're just going to start putting wedges in when you have to cut. The sapwood and bark were riveted off the billet. So... You would come up and take your fro and you, you would cut off any excess that you didn't need. Each bill was split dead center to give two equal halves. Each half was then rived again to give four wedge-shaped pieces. In the, in the split was nearer an edge than the center. It was apt to cross, cross the fibers and drift toward the, the, the thinner piece of material. Uh, the wedge-shaped shingle must be feathered with a draw knife. The smooth surface would form an under part of the shingle and would split surf and the split surface would face up to drain the rain. Oak billets certainly split well with a fro and repelled insects and rot handily, but the riveted edge shape made oak a better clabbered than a shingle. The first trial slices of cedar, cypress, chestnut, and white pine must have been a happy surprise. These woods had none of oak sapwood and heartwood, and no trimming was necessary. They need not be rived into wedges. Shape billets for the shingles could be split parallel to each other. Further, the fact that an off-center split, uh, off-center split, sheared off toward the thinner side could now be used. Uh, in advantage with cedar, cypress, chestnut, and white pine. When the fro was driven in, a, in an inch or so from a riven face and then levered the split crossed fibers and on down to produce a nicely tapered shingle. Any high spot could be trimmed off with the draw knife or a very small, a very, uh, a very sharp hatchet. So just a few more things here and then we're going to, we're, I think we're going to call it an episode. Um, the, the, always looking when we're, we're, we're trying to make the shingles, we want a clear section with absolutely no knots. So you had to, uh, look between the branches on these trees. Um, let's see, the split fiber glues made fine drainage channels. So when they say split fiber, they're not all these shakes available today are split fiber. So when they're hand split, remember that's a great channel for the rain. After each shingle was levered free, the log was turned upside down to keep the taper. Riving shingles was a good winter sit-down chore for youngsters and oldsters. Practiced hands could turn out an upward of 
500 shingles a day. Rive and green, they would be stacked and dry enough for warm weather ahead for the roofing. 